Welcome to Play on Words, a podcast produced on the Coast Salish territories of the Songhees and Husainich nations of the Lekwungen and Sinchothan speaking peoples, and broadcast on CFUV 101.9 FM. Each episode of Play on Words brings you experimental and fictional stories. This week, an exploration of how scientists create sounds from space to help us understand the universe in a different way. We start our exploration over 2,000 years ago, when the very first example of music being used to represent the cosmos was developed. The harmony of spheres dates back to ancient Greece, when in the late 6th century BC, legend has it that the famous philosopher Pythagoras was inspired by the variance in pitch when different hammers were hit against an anvil by a blacksmith. The blacksmith explained to him that each of the hammers had a different weight, causing the variance in pitch. This meant that there was a relationship between sound and mass, and this experience inspired Pythagoras to represent the difference in pitch he heard using mathematical ratios. This is said to be one of the first times mathematics was used to represent human experience, which was an integral development in science. The discovery of the relationship between sound and mathematical ratios led Pythagoras to develop one of the basic functions of music theory, musical intervals. If you've ever studied music or can play an instrument, then you know that intervals are the difference in pitch between two sounds. For example, the note C and C sharp. The second note is higher than the first, and the difference between these intervals would have been similar to the difference in pitch when hammers of different weights were slammed against an anvil by a blacksmith. Ancient philosophers, such as Pythagoras, believed that music and science were related, and that the eccentricities of the universe were purposefully composed by the gods in order to write a beautiful and interesting symphony that only the gods and Pythagoras himself could hear. As Pythagoras' teachings were passed down to other philosophers such as Aristotle, Pythagoreans were said to have believed that each celestial body, the sun, the moon, the planets, etc., each produced a distinct note, the note's pitch being determined by its orbit's velocity. Eventually, thousands of years after Pythagoras' time, his theories were expanded upon by astronomer Johannes Kepler, who assigned notes to each planet, creating the harmony of the spheres. Kepler did this by identifying each celestial body's unique orbit and velocity. Since the distance from the sun varies throughout a planet's orbit, so does its velocity, as a planet gets closer to the sun, its velocity, or speed, increases. As it moves further away, it slows down. The rise and fall in velocity of the planet's orbit was represented by a variance in the pitch of the note that was assigned to each planet. For example, here is Mercury's note as determined by the harmony of spheres. Mercury is the innermost planet and therefore has the fastest orbit and highest pitch. You can hear as its tone rises and falls quickly as it orbits around the sun. Mercury, compared to an outer planet such as Jupiter, has a much higher pitch. Jupiter's tone is lower to represent the lower velocity in which it traverses and its higher mass.
When listening to the difference between each planet's assigned sounds, we have an inherent understanding of the information that is being represented auditorily, which shows us the effectiveness of sound as a way to communicate data. The harmony of spheres continues to inspire music, science, and art in the 21st century. Sonification is the translation of data into sound, and the harmony of spheres is one of the earliest examples of sonification. Since antiquity, humans have felt a desire to express information using all of our different senses in order to gain a more in-depth understanding of data. Today, scientists have taken the notions originally created by the philosophers and scientists such as Pythagoras and Kepler to another level, closing the gap between art and sciences once again. One example of how the harmony of spheres and science has inspired contemporary art is the infinity machine. The Infinity Machine is an art installation created by Canadian artists Janet Cardiff and George Buer Miller for the Byzantine Fresco Chapel in Houston, Texas. Cardiff and Miller are a married couple from Grindrod, BC. The piece was commissioned to be the first of a series of site-specific installations, and it is a large mobile piece created with over 150 antique mirrors, with two mirrors facing each other at the center, creating infinite reflections and inspiring the name of the piece, the Infinity Machine. As the enormous mobile rotates, the mirror's reflections distort and seemingly spread, much like the universe itself. This visual representation is paired with music that was inspired by what was originally Pythagoras' philosophical theory, the harmony of spheres. The music used was captured by the Voyager 1 and 2 spacecrafts in the Earth's ionosphere. The Voyager's antenna recorded the interaction between particles of solar wind and magnetic fields of different celestial bodies. These interactions create vibrations that are inaudible in space. We can hear them when played on Earth because the ions resonate at a frequency within the range of human hearing and can be translated or sonified into audible sounds. Walking around them and experiencing the at times co-orbital and at times contra-orbital soundtrack, you might imagine yourself adrift in deep space. This is how Toby Camps, the curator of modern and contemporary art for the Mennel Collection at the Byzantine Fresco Chapel, described the Infinity Machine. This project is a particularly interesting way that sonification has been used to express data focusing on both visual and auditory representations of space and time. Another piece of work inspired by space, or more specifically the planets, is Gustav Holst's orchestral suite, The Planets, Op. 32. Written between 1914 and 1916, this composition consists of seven parts, one for each of the planets that could be seen from Earth at the time. This worldly acclaimed piece is unique because instead of mathematics or science, Gustav's composition, The Planets, was inspired by astrology. Each of the seven movements is therefore named after a planet and its corresponding astrological character as defined by Holst, who had been introduced and simultaneously captivated by astrology just before beginning to write this orchestral suite. The first of the orchestral suite is Mars, the bringer of war.
Sound familiar? This piece was one of the compositions that inspired John Williams when composing the soundtrack of Star Wars. This movement's intensity grows throughout. It is rhythmic, yet chaotic. Paired with a deep, synthetic sound, we are given the impression of something extraterrestrial. Next, Venus, bringer of peace. Especially when contrasted with Mars, this piece is light and uplifting, relaxing and hopeful. It gives space for thought and calmness, and an appreciation for beauty and serenity. Mercury, the Winged Messenger. Whimsical and airy, this movement manifests imagery of something dancing in the wind. It rises and falls, bounces from side to side, and then gets back on track towards its final destination. Jupiter, bringer of jollity. Like Jupiter, this piece is an epic ensemble, invigorating a sense of triumph and pride. Saturn, bringer of old age. This piece starts quite soft and simple compared to the rest of the suite, but gradually it builds, creating a feeling of inevitability. It varies from harmonious to sporadic, much like life in our perception of time passing.
Magician. entrance. This movement captures the listener and then mesmerizes them with a distortion of tones and pitches varying from high to low. This composition is very playful and mischievous, but also powerful. and dramatic, this movement builds suspense and implies that something mysterious is looming, forcing us to the edge of our seats in anticipation. The harp adds charm and mystery to the movement, and the contrast of sounds and instruments throughout the piece, then layered with a mystical choir, creates a sense of space as new and unexplored territory, the unknown. Gustav Holst's The Planets is another example of how music can be used to expand our understanding of the world, or more accurately, the worlds and the universe around us. As how Pythagoras highlighted the relationship between music and mathematics, Gustav hoped to represent myth and astrology associated with space and the planets. Information that cannot be put into words is conceptualized through instruments and the composition of music, which gives the listener a way to understand both the physicalities and the cultural or even emotional impressions of the celestial bodies. Both Holst's compositions and Cardiff and Miller's Infinity Machine use music as an artistic representation of information and space. During Pythagoras' time, art and science were interrelated and contributed to one another. Both the planets and the infinity machine seem to inspire the same question. How can sonification help us understand information from space? Thank you. 
So that's a good question. You know, when I first when when I first saw your email, um, the scientist in in me just smiled and said, maybe um, you don't quite understand out in space. There is no such thing as sound. That's Karun Thanjavur. My name is Karun, Karun Thanjavur. I teach astronomy as a senior lab instructor with the physics and astronomy department at UVic. But what you were looking for is how do scientists visualize or how do you sonify space? And that kind of brought home to me what you're after, you know, which is quite interesting. And we do that in, in our own ways. Um, uh, astronomers do attach sound to space. Maybe some of you are thinking, but we can't hear sounds in space. You are remembering that grade five science class where you learned that there is no sound in space because it's a vacuum. So there isn't really sound in space, but there are radio waves. Not like the ones we broadcast here at the station, but they are frequencies, and they are emitted by celestial bodies like the sun, the stars, and the planets. What scientists can do is to take the data collected from space, soundless and visual, and turn it into sound. Mark Ballora from Penn State University explained that scientists can take mathematical data and attach sound to it so that we can experience it in a new way. So it's just important to be clear that when you really talk about sonification, what you're doing is you're using sound to illustrate the behavior of of something. You're not making a recording of that thing. So it's, it's uh, at a very simple level, it's just a different kind of graph. But at a more interesting level, it's a graph that speaks to the ears. And the ears perceive things differently than the eyes do. And so it, it, it's a different qualitative experience. It's, you know, it's, it's the difference between looking at a beautiful painting and listening to a beautiful piece of music. They're both valuable experiences, but they're quite different. And uh, so uh, as a composer, as a sound designer, uh, this is uh, what turns me on, is, is trying to find uh, music within the science, within the data. Karun again. It's more as a way of conveying a scientific idea to the lay people, you know, it's to take a difficult, you know, because as scientists, we can look at the mathematics and we understand what the mathematics is telling us, but we cannot use the mathematics to describe it to the general audience. And so this chirp or the sonification makes it a easiest way of portraying what's going on without getting into the heavy duty math, you know, so that's where sonification comes in. With a little of our own research, we found the ways that frequencies produced in space can be translated into sound. These sounds are more beautiful and eerie than you might expect.
here's Mark Ballora again. What I almost think is more interesting is just the more general and more open-ended notion of just experiencing a data set in a different modality that that uh, you, you know you discover things in different ways and depending on what you're looking at you're going to learn different things so you're going to learn one thing if you look at a graph and you may learn something else by looking at a table or a column of numbers and by listening you will experience it differently and it and it speaks to you more viscerally And you, when you download the data set, it's the values of a bunch of the, the amplitude values of a number of frequencies all over time. So then it was a matter of saying, well, okay, uh, what if these frequencies were transposed down a large number of octaves and experienced as sound rather than light? And then I just played all those frequencies with the same amplitude and maybe slow that down too, because that happens about 30 times a second. But if I slow it down so that it takes about three seconds to go through a cycle and I've got these transpositions and then just assign it to sine waves so that I've got this pulsing cord that, is, that reflects the behavior of the pulsar. Um, so that's what it is. It's, it's a matter of designing an instrument that kind of makes intuitive sense, but that is also informed, that also... Um, intelligibly intelligibly reflects the behavior of the the data set that that I'm sonifying the the good thing about sonifying thing is that you you can listen to simultaneous data sets and you can you can hear how they relate to each other or not uh, you know so it's like looking at a bunch of graphs all at once but it's easier to, to listen to a bunch of graphs all at once than it is to look at a bunch of graphs all at once. This, to me, is, is valuable. The, the fact that this can speak to people in a new way, that it can engage people in a new way, that just opens the door to discoveries. Dr. Thanjavur wanted to share how the recent Nobel Prize-winning discovery of gravitational waves led to some really interesting sonification. This is something that Einstein's theory of general relativity predicted 100 years ago, back in 1915, when he first came up with a theory that objects, you know, any object with mass will affect 
what he called space-time around it. You know, so you can think of it as a, a bowling ball sitting on a trampoline, which is the usual picture that they use to help people visualize what Einstein was talking about. So if you take a, a bowling ball and you, if you place it on a trampoline, the sheet of trampoline kind of curves down, you know, under the, the weight of the ball. The same thing in three dimensions is the way Einstein visualized the effect of mass on surrounding space and time. You know, he called it space-time. So instead of three dimensions of Newton, it became four dimensions of Einstein. And so there is a very close interconnection between the two. And if that picture is correct, you know, it wasn't known whether that picture is correct or wrong, and for 100 years we've been testing his theories and it's come out correct in every instance. And one of the consequences of this bending or of the rubber sheet is that if you then bounce that bowling ball, the sheet around it will have waves, just like you see waves in water. You know, if you throw a pebble in a pond, you have ripples going out. The same thing should happen in space-time as well. You know, if the bowling ball bounces, the trampoline has to sh show some wave-like patterns on it. And he called them gravitational waves. Scientists in the U.S. at LIGO, the Laser Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory, did experiments in the 70s to test for gravitational waves with two giant arms at right angles to each other and a laser beam which cancels itself out because of mirrors. If a gravitational wave passed by, the arms are moved at different rates and the laser beam would create a leakage of light. Once they were able to identify the signal of gravitational waves using this technology, they detected the gravitational waves of black holes. You may have heard of black holes, which are extremely massive objects, so massive that even light cannot escape these black holes. But you could have two of these black holes, and because of their gravity, they start falling towards each other, and they don't directly fall in and collapse. They kind of spiral inwards, you know, this well-understood physics. And we call them binary black holes, and when they finally merge, because each of them, remember the picture of the trampoline balls, now there are two of them which are spinning each other, and finally when they bang together, there has to be bigger ripples that go across on the trampoline sheet. And so the signal, which is fairly weak when they're just spiraling each other, suddenly becomes very strong. But what is interesting from your perspective is these gravitational waves, just like waves in water, have what is called a, a frequency. You know, So how often do the waves pass you by is what is called frequency. And the frequency of these waves falls within the same frequency as our audible range. You know, So our audible range is from 20 hertz to 20 kilohertz, I think, and these are in that range. So if our ears could actually hear gravitational waves, we would hear the sound. Mm -hmm. Of course, there is no sound because this is just, you know, it's space-time which is going. Our ears cannot pick it up, but the frequency matches the sound that we can hear. And LIGO has actually sonified that, you know, so it actually has made it into a little sound clip, and they call it a chirp. <laughs> Even has a name, a sound name. So you hear the chirp of two black holes merging, and I sent you a little sound clip, and if you play it, you can actually hear that little chirp. Okay, so I'm going to play it. Okay. Yeah, so it's a very, like, it's a quick little, it's a short... Blip. Yeah, yes. yeah. 
And that is the last few milliseconds of the merger itself. You know, it, it's not a long time. So it's the at the very end, just before they merge and become one, is when they emit this burst of, of gravitational waves, which LIGO can pick up. You know, prior to that, it's the signal is not um, loud enough for LIGO to pick up. So it's only as they merge that you get this chirp. And of course, once they combine together, once they finish the merger, they're done. You know, they won't emit anything more. They become one. So that's why there is an increase in the frequency. You know, it kind of starts off low and then just go whoop. And then it, it's silence after that, which is the merger itself. And so that is the sonification I wanted to point out is, you know, so scientists have used sound to kind of... Um, enhance what is happening physically, you know, that these two uh, black holes actually merge. And the signal that I sent you is, I think, from two black holes, which are about 30 times heavier than the sun, you know, so fairly big objects, but not the biggest of the black holes. You know, the black holes come in much heavier or much more massive black holes. So these are fairly big and they merged together and emitted the gravitational waves. It's to make something which is um, ethereal, you know, something you cannot put your fingers on, it makes it tangible, you know, so it makes it such that your senses can identify with what is going on. And like I said, it's the last stages of the merger, you know, so you can kind of picture these two black holes coming together. It's almost like an artist's rendition of things that we cannot directly observe in space. You know, we talk about exploding stars, supernovae, and all that. So artists have actually rendered it, you know, they've kind of put a picture based on the observations of what it could look like. So it's just like Picasso and these famous painters, they all have their own styles and all of them convey this idea of beauty in different ways. You could do the same with sound as well. You know, you can take the same, the chirp, but convey it using some other kind of a means of sonification, you know, so. Here they've used sound, so maybe there is something using light, for instance, or yeah, another way of showing it as well. Could well be. It's the same for music. You know, music we expect to be sublime, to be uplifting, to be moving, whatever that might be. A, a sonification is a map, so we shouldn't place the same expectations on the map that we place on a piece of music. And, and I get that. Uh, I, I also have to say that I, I personally, I quite enjoy looking at maps. <laughs> I, I, I really like them. So I, I don't see it as contradictory to think that this map should be a sublime listening experience. To me, it's not enough just to make a map. I, 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 I want to, I approach it as a, as a composer, as a sound designer. I want to create a sublime experience, and I don't see that as, contradictory to uh, making something informative. That's what any graph is. Right? It's mapping. If I make a little graph of it, I'm taking these dumb numbers and I'm making a pretty picture out of them by mapping the values to something visual, like height or, or color or something. Here, I'm doing a mapping, but it's auditory. I'm mapping it to pitch or volume or stereo position or timbre or array. So the trick to, to uh, design an instrument in the synthesis environment that kind of sounds like the thing that I'm reflecting the behavior of 
So, like, if it's the Aurora Borealis, I want to design something that sounds shiny and shimmery, right? Or, or um, uh, with a pulsar, it was kind of literal. The pulsar, the data sets are um, amplitude values. It's like an amplitude envelope. You get there's this repetitive signal that they get from the pulsar that that spins, and and you, when you download the data set, it's the values of a bunch of the, the amplitude values of a number of frequencies all over time. Okay? And then that becomes like a musical score. It becomes like a player piano role. So being able to sonify information lets us experience information from space. Some dumb numbers, as Mark says, into a form that we do understand, sound or music. An astronomer named Wanda Diazmer said, and you can look at her TED talk, which is which is quite wonderful. She she became uh, ill when she was an under, undergraduate student, and she lost her sight, so she could not see. And she was spent her life trying to get into this field that relied on looking at visual graphs. And now, what she's shut out of that just because she can't see? Isn't there kind of a problem there? Why shouldn't blind people be able to engage with science, right? So she worked with programmers and developed this program called Exsonify uh, that allowed her to listen to graphs in kind of the same way that I was just describing. You know, it treats the graph like a musical score and it plays it like a piece of music. So in, in her TED Talk, she talks about how she's now able to work at the same level that she worked at when she was sighted, which is a wonderful uh, um, accessibility uh, possibility personification but then what you can almost lose in that is this kind of aside that oh by the way her sighted colleagues like using it too because they often find that they can hear things that they don't see so readily and the ear is extremely sensitive to dynamics the ear uh i think it's uh, bruce walker a guy from icad who wrote that the ear is the greatest pattern recognizer that we've ever known what Mark is talking about here is how sensitive the ear is. When we sample sound in order to have something that is a decent quality, we use 44.1 thousand samples per minute. To put this in perspective, when we watch a film, it used 35 frames or samples per second. So it takes a lot more information for the ear to be satisfied. That means that the ear, as Mark suggested, is able to take in much more detailed information than the eye. Um, it kind of uh, makes me think of this idea, so we take these waves that aren't audible to human beings and make them audible to us. Um, and it just yeah. makes me wonder if, if there are other beings that they would be audible, or not maybe audible, or like sense, would be able well, to be sensed audible. in other ways, even like on Earth or... Otherwise, uh, perhaps? Yeah. Well, uh, you know, that, like there's a book called Hearing the Universal Sense by Seth Horowitz, and he, and he talks about, you know, what the senses are and how the senses evolved. And, you know, real, uh, our senses are like little antennas that we have, and they pick up vibrations around us, like the eyes pick up electromagnetic vibrations. Now, as it turns out, there's only a very narrow band of electromagnetic vibrations that we can see. We call it visible light, right? The whole ultra-red and ultraviolet spectrum is huge amount. And Wanda Diaz-Merced says this, you know, we're all blind to that stuff. All we see is this little tiny piece, and we, we hear vibrations in the air. We hear acoustic vibrations from about 20 hertz to 20,000 hertz, probably less. Uh but, you know, dogs, yeah, dog whistles. Dogs can hear higher frequencies than we can. We, we, we have evolved to perceive a, a limited spectrum of vibration in, in, among our senses, and, and we think that we're seeing the world as it is. What we are experiencing is the world as our senses have evolved to experience it in a way that allows us to survive. Right? But other, other creatures see things differently. They see different colors, or they don't see colors. Or I, I, I've heard that birds can sense uh, magnetic um, currents around the Earth, and that's how they, they can navigate long flights. 
So other species have different sensory apparatus, apparatus than, than humans have. So who knows what the world looks like to them, what their experiences are like. So, yeah, it's entirely plausible that some other species, either here or elsewhere, would be able to hear these things. If it is useful for them to survive, they would evolve to hear them, is the most likely explanation. I'm not so much interested in what I can discover through sonification. I'm more interested in how I can engage young people through it and how they might find it interesting to just grow up thinking that, yeah, you listen to science too, and they'll make discoveries. You know, in, in, in a few decades, there will be discoveries made through listening as well as by looking and, and all the other traditional modes of examination. So it, it, it just, you know, just as we as we navigate our environment with the eyes and the ears, it it makes sense to examine complex data sets with the eyes and the ears too. You know, so it's not like sonification is a better way or anything like that than standard visualization. It's it's just a, it's an it's an augmentation of these more traditional ways of examining data, and it it just at the risk of repeating myself, it speaks to us in new ways. And, and just when you hear something in different ways, it, it sounds different to you. I mean, you, you just get different kinds of insights when you have multiple reinforcing representations of, of information. This sonic experience has been brought to you by Play on Words. Thank you to our guests, Mark Ballora and Karun Thanjavur. Play on Words is produced by Estraven Lapino Smith and Katie Denslow, with Cody O'Neill, Navjot Kaur, Chase Velanosi, and George Dupois. Our executive producer is Mary Decker. If you like what you heard, subscribe to Play on Words wherever you listen to your podcasts, and don't forget to rate and review. This episode was made possible with the generous support of the Community Radio Fund of Canada and the BC Gaming Society. Special thanks to the UVic Astronomy Department Open House for letting us record. curtain for a minute and check out behind the scenes of CFPB's podcasts. Hello, my name is Baraka. My most significant contribution to the podcast series was my narration on episode six of All Access, which is about recording and the experience of DIY recording. I got into this as a favor for a friend of mine, Nicola, who was the producer on the All Access podcast. And I had a lot of fun narrating that episode. I came down to CFUV, closed myself in a room for about an hour and uh, had a script. I talked to myself, I laughed at myself, and uh, yeah, it turned out to be a podcast, which you can listen to on CFUV or wherever you get your podcasts. And CFUV is always looking for volunteers, people to help out. So if you enjoyed the podcast and you like locking yourselves in rooms and talking to yourself, as many of us do, Come down to CFUV and do it for a good cause.
If you like this episode, you'll love You and the Rings' science-inspired episode on earthquakes called The Big One.